This is Crypto Radio, powered by MoneyWeb, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Marcus Swanepoel is the chief executive officer and co-founder of Luno, which is the largest crypto exchange in South Africa in terms of customer numbers. And last year was bought out by Digital Currency Group, which is a venture capital company focused on digital currencies and the blockchain. The company's now, that's Luno, is about seven years old and was a pioneer in bringing crypto to the African market. It has about 6 million customers in over 40 countries, but the plan is to grow this to 1 billion in the next 10 years. Marcus, first of all, welcome. A lot of people find it interesting that Luno, born in South Africa, would eventually come to the attention of Digital Currency Group and form the basis of its global retail expansion. Explain how that happened and how you came to meet up. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Very excited to be spending time with you here. The background with Digital Currency Group is they've really been around since day one. They were our first seed investor. Uh, Their founder is a guy called Barry Silbert. He's founded other companies that he sold. And he's one of the most prolific investors in the crypto industry. He's invested in over 100 crypto companies. And I can actually remember, you know, sitting in Stellenbosch when we were just five people in a room doing calls with Barry, talking about, you know, where's this industry going to go in the future? And so in some sense, you know, Barry and Digital Currency Group has actually been part of the journey from day one. And over the years, you know, we've always talked about doing something more together other than him being a small investor. And as you know, DCG is really a powerhouse in the in the crypto sector. It's, it's one of the most prolific investors. But I think a lot of people think of them as a VC, but they're not really a VC. That's just kind of a small part of what they do. What they really do is they own and operate some of the top assets in the in the sector. So they own Grayscale, which is the biggest asset manager in the US for crypto. I think they have now close to $25 billion under management, the biggest lender and trading company, Genesis. They own the biggest media company in the space, Coin, Coindesk. And the, the piece that was really missing for them was this this retail piece, which which we offered, obviously. So, you know, over the years, we've had many acquisition offers and we passed on all of them. We very happily, you know, doing what we're doing. But DCG was really an exception given how well I knew them, given their business model of, you know, allowing companies to run with full autonomy uh, because DCG is just a couple of people. It's just a holding company. And in some sense, similar to NASPERS, they own a lot of these companies and brands, but they operate completely independently. And their culture is just really, really similar to ours. So, you know, I say to people in some sense, nothing has changed. Instead of, you know, having seven or eight shareholders and three board members, I now have just one shareholder and one board member. Um, and I'm still the CEO running the company. But in some sense, everything has changed because we now have access to these broader DCG capabilities, including an enormous balance sheet, all these subsidiaries that are market leaders in their parts of the ecosystem, and really a mandate to become the acquirer rather than being acquired. Acquired, So, you know, we're going to be driving a lot of consolidation in the market as things heat up. So, you know, I think honestly, it's one of the best things we as a team could have done and, and also something we, we could have done for our customers. I still think, you know, it's going to be a complete game changer, not just with DCG and us, but also the industry as well. So I think it's still going to go down in crypto history as one of the smartest strategic moves made. But Let's see how, how it all plays out, but all very good at the moment. Okay, so talk about the 1 billion customers. I mean, th- that is really like Facebook-level penetration. How are you going to get there? Uh, and people might sort of roll their eyes, yeah, okay. You've obviously got a plan. You're not just throwing out a number like that. Yes, I mean, look, I'm smiling now because honestly, if it was any other industry, you know, I had to get up somewhere and say 1 billion customers, I would also laugh, right? If it's online food delivery or selling shoes online, I mean, there's no way you can get to that scale 
unless you're the exception, like something like Uber, where you're just willing to burn through billions of VC dollars to essentially give things away below market value, right? But, you know, it wouldn't be realistic. But the reality of our industry is that we can actually get to that scale. And in fact, you know, in the next six months, we are going to be in enough countries where there are over 1 billion adults, which all in theory could use our product. So the infrastructure is already there for them to use it. We just need them to actually find us. Obviously, there's a lot of education to be done, but this is opposed to other companies that just structurally, because of their business models, they cannot access so many so many users, you know, like, like a Uber or, or again, like a, online delivery companies that have to build all of this infrastructure. So, you know, and this 1 billion number of customers, you know, doesn't just come from people directly using our app. We, we also have a lot of partners that use our APIs and our liquidity pools to, to bring crypto to their customers. So we are indirectly actually also impacting those people. So you'll see a lot more news over the ne- next few months of some of these partners that we're announcing. And, you know, that helps you get to that level of scale in a very short amount of time. So it becomes completely doable. And I would also just, you know, mention, you know, money is something that everyone uses in one way or another, right? So, and, and we believe, you know, while a lot of the thinking about the, use cases for cryptos around investing and trading at the moment, we still really, really believe that, you know, it's going to replace all existing financial use cases, whether you're going to be investing or storing or spending online or sending to someone in another country, crypto is going to impact that over the next 10 years as well. So, you know, again, with, with all of these things tied together, it's completely feasible to get to 1 billion users in the next 10 years. And, and that's what we're going to do. And it's been our vision all along. You know, we, we're going to empower these billion people by upgrading the world to a, to a better financial system, which 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 is our, our vision. And, you know, over time, these use cases and value will become a lot more clear. You know, people have a very different views of how this might play out. You know, will it be everyone using Bitcoin or everyone using Libra or local currency stable coins or normal currencies backed by some crypto tech? I can't tell you the answer to that. But for us, it doesn't really matter because we are somewhat agnostic to the technology as long as it makes life better in one way or another for the customers. That's really all that matters. Where do you see the banks fitting into all of this? Are they going to have to sign on to this new technology? A lot of them seem to be very slow in their adoption. What do you think? Where are the banks going to fit into it? I don't know if you know the the founding kind of start of Luna, but we actually in the first few years, our business was to build crypto systems for major banks. And that's what we did for the first year or two before we actually started focusing more on the consumer market. So we have a lot of insight with banks, and this is not just in South Africa, but it's across Africa, Southeast Asia, Australia, the US, and so on. And at the time, you know, we were building systems for banks, we were building it on their servers, and they were really banks that were interested in doing it. But obviously, you know, there's been a lot of hurdles to overcome both on the, you know, perception front and education front and regulatory front. And so we think over time, banks will actually enter into this space. And I can tell you now, they are, you know, they don't say it publicly, but they are banks that have already built systems internally for their customers to buy crypto. And this is even in South Africa. They have not released it to their customers, but it works. And so they're just going through their, all their kind of checks to make sure that, you know, they, they can launch these products to their customers. We will start see that happening over the next, I'd say, 12 to 12 to 18 months. I don't think it's going to be every single bank. It's going to be kind of more the innovative banks. You tend to find it's more the banks that are slightly smaller banks that are looking for differentiation versus a really, really big bank. So you will see these these kind of more innovative, you know, slightly smaller banks start to make moves into the space. And eventually the large banks will follow as well. And, you know, typically that would just be a way for them, you know, for their customers to buy Bitcoin as an alternative investment, you know, uh, along with some you know other investments that these banks provide. So it's, it's happening, but it's going to be a bit slow. 
for, for the next year or two. But after that, I think it's going to be, you know, all systems go. Right. Okay. So you see the, the business case for Luna changing from one that's purely investment and um, acquiring a digital asset to involving payments. And payments, of course, is where the, the real mass market is. And that's how you can very quickly scale up to a billion people. There are a lot of people who are saying that cryptos won't last. And although there are a few of them, you know, after last year, we had Bitcoin going up by 330%. I think those people have become less vocal. But what do you say to those people? And there are some of them in the banks as well who are saying that this is, you know, this is a passing fad. It won't last. I mean, the first thing I would say is, you know, to each of their own, all right? I've got yet to convince anyone of anything. You know, I'm the first one to say that this is a new risky technology and, you know, don't spend more money than you can afford to lose on it. But, you know, I would also recommend people just keep an open mind on just things in general in life, right? You've maybe heard the saying, software is eating the world. Um, and finance is going to get the same treatment, you know, that media and telecoms has had. And what I can also say is don't expect it to be an incremental change. And, you know, I always think about, you know, many years ago, we, we, we actually thought about building a challenger bank in a particular country where we had access to a banking license. And, you know, I spent a couple of, you know, weeks talking to all the founders of a lot of these global well-known challenger banks in the UK and the US. And it all kind of came together with a conversation I had with someone where they were explaining what, they would, what their bank does, their challenger bank does. And I, I kept asking, but how is this different from the bank? It sounds like it's just like a nice app and it's a bit easier to use and you're not charging fees, but how is it really different? And the person couldn't really answer it. And then at the end of the conversation, I said, but are you trying to challenge the bank or are you trying to sell your company to a bank? And the guy just looked at me and he smiled and he said, let's see what happens. And that's when I realized, look, a lot of the fintech companies and challenge banks, there's some really great products and there's some nice niches that they go after, but it's really incremental change, right? Just having a nicer app with a you know slightly better onboarding and not charge fees for certain things, that's incremental, right? So if crypto is going to change or, or the financial system is going to change, it has to be something that's quite extreme, something as extreme as a decentralized, you know, cryptocurrency or so on. So again, I think, you know, there's just so much evidence pointing now to, to crypto being, you know, in a, in a trajectory to do that. And I honestly think we've reached the tipping point, you know, whether that's on adoption numbers for retail customers, the way the media are talking about it, the way regulators are treating it, you know, the way institutions are investing in it and coming on board. And, and even this recent GameStop um, saga that you saw in the US, I mean, where there's a lot of disempowered and disgruntled people that are looking for alternatives, and they're looking for those alternatives in the investment world, and that will spread to the broader financial system. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think people should make up their own mind. And again, I'm not here to convince anyone of anything. But I think you should also not be blind to the reality staring you in the face when it comes to new technologies. I think one of the things that we've really seen in the last year two years, but particularly in the last year, is the rate of crypto adoption in Africa. The take-up seems to be huge. It's obvious it's huge because you have currencies in these countries that are just not you know, holding their value. Give us your experience of this. I mean, because you, you do have operations in Nigeria. You have a lot of customers in Africa. What has been the your experience in the rate of adoption? Yes, that's a good point. Look, I think it's a, it's a mix of things, right? So, so there's obviously a, a big segment of customers that are very similar that you would find in big cities anywhere in the world where, you know, people are, you know, maybe well-educated, have a lot of disposable income, and they're looking for, you know, some alternative investment. So, you know, we see a lot of people trying to diversify their investment portfolio and, and just really searching for yield in other places. And, and that naturally flows to new asset classes or new kind of interesting um, asset classes. But I think in the short run, you know, what we're also seeing interestingly in Africa is 
you know, you would think a lot of the people that use Luno, you know, would be, it, it, it would be like they already experienced traders and they're doing Forex or they, you know, buying a lot of other investment products. And f- for many people, it's actually the first time they've, they've considered investing their money. And this is, you know, a broad global trend. I think there's a big trend on retail investing. You know, there's a lot of reasons why we see that, it's, you know, just easier to use it and the limits are lower for people and there's low interest rates, so there's more cash. So we see kind of that global phenomenon also hit the hit the African markets. But at the same time, like you mentioned, the incentives, the fundamental incentives are a bit stronger. So other than just, you know, being a smart investor and balancing your portfolio, there's things like you mentioned, you know, weak currencies, capital controls, you know, lack of access to other investment products in a lot of these markets. So that definitely is a driving factor. We are also, you know, you know, as I mentioned, we, we over time, we, we see people moving more into a transaction um, use case. And, and at the moment, we are seeing people buy for transacting also in Africa. But I would say it's, in, it's definitely in the minority. It's, it's probably sub 10%. But some of the activity that you see, even on the buying crypto for an investment point of view, it's almost an acknowledgement of that fact, right? So if you are buying Bitcoin now, you, you, you're not just buying this thing that is like online or digital gold, but you effectively investing in, in this new payment system rather than, you know, a currency itself. And, and so people who acknowledge that over time, these things can become more interesting for payments are actually also um, using that. And that, again, comes a lot from the African market. But of course, you know, there's also other just kind of broad fundamental differences. You know, we have very high mobile adoption and, and early adopter mentality in a lot of African countries. And generally, the financial system isn't as, you know, as, as strong as some other countries. South Africa is obviously an exception. I think the financial uh, services sector is, is pretty, pretty strong. But it's really kind of creating a perfect storm between all of these factors that's really driving a lot of the adoption, both short term and long run in, in Africa. Okay, Luna was very measured in its expansion. You started in 2013. You don't offer the widest range of cryptos, and for many years it was only Bitcoin that you could buy on the exchange. Of course, you've now expanded it to offer other cryptos. What's the plan going forward? Are you going to be a place where people can go and buy all of these thousands of, um, of smaller coins? Are you going to be very much focused on, you know, what are the most popular cryptos? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think you know, a lot of people think that we don't add all the stuff because we don't have time or we don't want to, but it's really been on purpose because, you know, what we offer is, you know, first of all, trust and second of all, simplicity, right? So I think, you know, I, I used to work in, in London in the in the consumer banking sector and, and I, at some point I worked on, on credit card products and I saw how the credit card companies were really trying to keep people in debt, right? So they lend you money, but not so much that you default, but also they don't want you to take on any any debt. So they kind of keep people in this in this range. And I remember speaking to people at the company and I felt very uncomfortable with it. And I thought, you know, you know, it didn't feel ethically responsible because a lot of it was quite manipulative. And the response was always, but these are adults. They know how to use with their money. That's not our problem. They can make decisions. But I realized a lot of people using those products were not really adults. They didn't understand the products. They didn't really know what they were doing. And so that argument didn't hold for me. And, you know, since we started building Luna, that's something I've taken with me. And I said, look, yes, there are some very sophisticated users that really understand crypto. But we have to take the approach that most people don't actually know what they're doing. And because of that, we are going to have to be more conservative and be more responsible. And so a lot of that, we, you know, the fact that we don't offer all those currencies is because a lot of it is potentially just going to rip people off. Now, again, there might be something that we called wrong and, you know, we're going to make some mistakes. 
but I'd rather be a little bit overcautious and, and not create a lot of, you know, uh, despair for people and try and just kind of build that, you know, if, if they're really sophisticated users and they want to go, you know, find something that we don't offer, sure, then they can, you know, they can buy Bitcoin with Luno and, and, and go buy it somewhere else. But I would also mention just, you know, from a regulatory point of view, you know, we also didn't bring crypto into South Africa across borders, which many other crypto companies do. And, you know, they haven't been working with the regulators for seven years like we have. So, you know, we really play things by the book while I think a lot of people try and take shortcuts. In fact, a lot of crypto companies, you know, in, in many areas that we operate were born from customers that we really blocked where, you know, these are customers that were either wanting to partake in Ponzi schemes or some dodgy behavior. And we just set the bar so high and, and they would then just go to other avenues with less stringent requirements. So, you know, this might work in the short term, but in the long term, if you're building a company that's going to be around for decades, then I think that's, you know, that's, that's really important. And it, you know, it aligns with one of our core values internally. We call our values mortality. And this particular one is get it done right. So, you know, similar to a lot of tech companies is that get it done part, but the right is very important to us. So, you know, yes, we can move fast, but, you know, it's within these boundaries of what we consider is best practice from both the ethical and, and regulatory perspective. So, you know, having said all, all of that, I acknowledge, you know, the market has evolved quite a bit over the last 12 months. And, you know, people are a lot more educated and so, you know, we must be careful to not be overly conservative. So you will see we, we already added USDC this week, which is very exciting. Just pause yeah. on that. Just explain. USDC is a, uh, is a stable coin backed by the US dollar. Why would somebody want to buy that? There's different reasons. I think some of it is, again, be getting exposure to that, you know, type of currency where it's maybe difficult for them to buy uh, dollars somewhere else or something similar. I think the more interesting aspect of USDC is over time using this as a as a way to create interoperability between other financial uh, systems. So a lot of companies, not just us, but a lot of crypto companies, but also other fintech companies are adding USDC. And also the banks in the US now also got regulatory approval to add USDC to them. So if you think about it, if a lot of the players in the financial sector add USDC as a way to move value in and out of their system, what you're really building is this massively interoperable interoperability. And as as, as you know, interoperability is is a massive game changer for for markets, in particularly you know countries in Africa. Having that interoperability really releases a lot of economic activity and a lot of GDP. So we at the early stages of that, but I see USDC more as like an interoperability play. But again, you know, we, we work very closely with Facebook and, and Libra and, you know, um, they've changed that now to DM. But, you know, so who knows? It could end up being that. Um, but yeah, we've got a few other things in the pipeline that are similar, but, but definitely we're going to be adding more things over the next year. But again, still with, you know, a measured approach, it's going to be, you know, in the single digit numbers, it's not going to be add, you know, let's add, you know, 1000 cryptocurrencies and, you know, have everyone uh, have their best shot at, you know, gambling, which is not what we want to do, right? We, we're not in that business. Is there an arbitrage gap if you're buying USDC? I know it's, you, you probably just started listing it today, and it might be a little bit early to, to say, but is there a, is a gap? In other words, if you're buying uh, USDC, which is effectively US dollars on the Luno exchange, are you paying a premium to what you would pay overseas? Look, in theory, you shouldn't. But as you know, you know, in a lot of emerging markets, you do start seeing arbitrage um, gaps open up because, you know, they are, it's relatively difficult to move um, currencies in and out of the system. I suspect with USDC, we won't see it because US dollar is something that's easier to move around. But again, it, you know, it, like you say, it's a bit early to say, but a lot of this arbitrage, remember, like, you know, arbitrage 
is something, it's a very, you know, short to medium term thing. Once the markets get more efficient, these things start getting priced out. Um, and, you know, especially once, you know, bigger money starts arbitraging things at some point, you know, all of this will disappear. So we might see a little bit of, of that in the short run, but definitely less with USDC than with some of the other cryptocurrencies, I, I, I would imagine. Just talk about your background. You come from a financial services. You grew up in Pretoria. You studied at Stellenbosch uh, University and University of Cape Town. How did you trip up on cryptos way back in 2013, the dinosaur age for crypto uh, <laughs> adoption? <laughs> You know, when I well, I found out about crypto in 2013, I thought I was already a di- you know too late to learn about it. But no, look, I, you know, long story short, you know, I've worked in finance for you know most of the last 20 years, and this is you know both originally as a chartered accountant in Johannesburg, but over time I I, I worked in London in in both um, retail banking and private equity, which was you know more, more on the investing side. And then also I worked for many years in investment banking, doing leverage finance and, and, and M&A in, in Southeast Asia. So across, you know, Indonesia, Malaysia and, and Singapore. So, you know, I spent all of that time in finance. And then in 2013, I decided to move to Palo Alto to really look at, you know, what are the biggest opportunities in tech? I really wanted to to do something in this space. Actually, since childhood, it's, it's been something I've wanted to do. And I was just fortunate to meet you know, a fellow, you know, fintech entrepreneur, actually a South African guy who was staying at my, on my couch in, in Palo Alto. And, you know, he told me about Bitcoin. He really helped educate me. And he also helped introduce a lot of the early founders of Luna. Um, so he was really quite instrumental. You know, I think having come from a finance background, obviously the, you know, when you see something like Bitcoin for the first time, you know, you do get a bit of an aha moment when you know all the things that are really wrong with the existing financial system. And it's not like the existing financial system is completely broken. It's just not optimal if you look at the world we live in today, right? So, you know, some days I, I wish that I started a tech company earlier, but in, in another sense, I needed to spend those 10 years in finance to really understand what's going on and how we can make it better. Yeah, so it was kind of just with luck that I found out. And, and from there, obviously, just try to learn as much as possible. And, you know, thankfully, I have a co-founder that is exceptionally smart and knows so much about crypto and and he really helped you know get me you know um uh, to the next level especially on the technical side of things and you know together we've 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 hopefully managed to to put a team together that can you know ultimately make people's lives better over the next you know 10 or 20 years right you're based in london now you were for a while were you based in south africa in the early stages now you've relocated to london is that correct yeah i've been living between singapore and london and you know one of the reasons why i'm also here is because we you know we've expanded into europe we we launched in the uk kind of properly you know sometime last year um it's actually you know, even though we, we have the strongest, I guess we're the, you know, the biggest player in Africa and, and some Southeast Asian markets, the UK is actually our biggest growth uh, region at the moment. Yeah. And we also have a big office here in London um, with some fantastic people and talent. Yeah. We, we have seven offices now around the world, but, you know, the UK offices become quite a critical part of that, along with, you know, Cape Town and Johannesburg. So, and then some of the other ones in Asia. So, yeah. So I'm here for now, but yeah, looking forward to seeing what we what we can do over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Just talk about that. You, you're quite late into the, the UK market. There were other exchanges before you. How do you penetrate something like that? And I guess back of that question is, are there loyalty factors? You know, if you're a Luno client, do you stick with Luno or somebody offers something slightly better or a coin that you don't list, you know, they'll, they'll go to another exchange. 
I guess costs would be an issue. What are the factors there which make for a sticky client that's going to hang around? Yeah, look, if we were a purely commoditized business and just competing on price, I think, you know, it people would switch a lot faster. And and you certainly see it on, you know, you can see it on people, for example, that trade a lot. They don't keep their crypto with an exchange. They want to move it around very quickly. Maybe they want to arbitrage between exchanges. So, uh, and they're very price sensitive, and you know, so so there you're gonna you, you're gonna see a little bit less stickiness, or, or or maybe not. You know, people don't leave one you know product for another; they kind of use multiple products. Maybe that's a better way to explain it. But in most cases, you know, because we you know we we really in the business of building trust with people, and you know, you hear all these horror stories about people losing money in crypto or thinking they invested in one thing and was another, and that's really what we are there to help try and avoid, right? So. You know, we help educate people. We make it really, really safe for them to keep it. I mean, our security is absolute, you know, world, you know, best practice. We get, you know, so many audits done. We make sure from a regulatory point of view, we do, you know, things uh, right. In, in some countries, we even, you know, already have licenses to operate. So, in, you know, you, you actually can't use other service providers, even if you if you wanted to. So there's a lot we do. And yes, so that does create stickiness because it we, we build, hopefully, trust for the customers. You know, sometimes we can't offer everything that they need, but generally speaking, I, I, I would I would say that, you know, people are very happy with, you know, what, what we do offer. And and again, you know, maybe you, you're a bit more of a sophisticated customer that's, you know, been in the industry for a long time and you're looking for, you know, the next big thing. But most people aren't there yet. Most people don't even know what Bitcoin is, right? Or certainly not Ethereum. So, you know, for them, they at the beginning of their journey. We, we really at the Early, early stage, yeah, you know, um, I, if, if globally there's more than 1% adoption, I, I would be shocked. So we're taking a more measured approach. And then, you know, to your question, going into other markets and competition and so on, I think, look, it depends very much on the market. In some markets where there's absolutely no infrastructure and we need to build everything from scratch, like exchanges and payment integrations and so on, definitely there, you know, going into a market early or being first is going to make a difference. Um, like I mentioned, we have licenses in some countries, we, which also create some, you know, regulatory barriers to entry. And a lot of, especially in emerging markets, they're very, very relationship driven. And it takes many, many years to build these relationships. It takes this time to make sure you can build the business properly. You know, so more money isn't going to make you go fast. If you just think, oh, I just raised some VC money and then launch a business in Nigeria. Now I'm going to be big. It's not going to happen, right? It's many years of time and investment in, into those markets. Um, however, in developed markets like the UK and, and, and the US, I, I feel that some of these earlier move advantages are less, you know, they're less of an issue because there's already a really strong, you, you don't have all these like long-term relationships and infrastructure needs. A lot of that's already there. And there's still really no top of mind brand in a lot of these markets, right? There's no, if you're walking around in the UK or Italy or Paris and you go to a random restaurant with 10 people sitting there, you go, go and buy crypto. Like they're not going to know who Luno is or Coinbase is or, you know, any other crypto company. So there's still a lot of mind space to play for. Um, and so we think that presents a, a really, really big opportunity for us. So, you know, I, I think maybe, you know, the key thing that we've just learned on this global expansion is really to acknowledge that every market is really different and need to be treated differently. And, you know, it's an easy thing to say. It's a very hard thing to do. Um, but you really have to respect the local culture and the rules and, and the relationships and the dynamics of that market. And, and I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of South African companies struggle to fail when, you know, uh, struggle to be successful when they go abroad. So we're trying to do it like that. Um, and, and, you know, for every market, I think there's an opportunity. It might just be it's slightly different for every market. Right. So maybe you're taking the Nando's approach. You know, Nando's cracked it in the UK, from what I understand. I haven't looked at it recently, but... Um 
you know, South African company. Totally, and they and they were actually one of my clients when I was in audit. And <laughs> so maybe I subconsciously, you know, learned from what they did. But they did some very smart things going into into a lot of the markets. Obviously, maybe I, you know, I can't repeat some of them now, but I can still remember some of the stuff they did. And they were really smart about it. And yes, they did crack it. So yeah, really fantastic example. Just a couple of quick questions: Is there a big advantage to being first to market? You were ahead of the curve when it came to cryptos in Africa. Now you're going into other markets where maybe you're not the first in you, you might be the fifth or the tenth in so there is a different approach that's required in in these markets so is there first mover advantage is my question yeah like i mentioned it depends on the market right where, where the market has no infrastructure and it requires you know a lot of things to be built like exchanges and payment integrations and a lot of education for regulators and and banks then certainly I think there is an advantage going in, you know, first because, you know, it's it's basically money doesn't make you move fast. It's literally just the time that you spend there and the, the quality of teams that you build there. And again, hiring a lot of these markets is very difficult. So I would say certainly in some emerging market countries, it, it, it helps go, going first. But then, as I mentioned, some developed markets, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. It's also because, you know, the pie is a lot bigger in developed markets. So, you know, yes, there's more competition, but there's also a lot more people with a lot more disposable income. Um, the education levels are a little bit higher. There's, you know, there's so, so the pie is bigger to play for, and there's a lot of infrastructure that's already there, and anyone can just tap into that. So, so again, it comes down to the same point of it depends on the market. In some markets, I would agree there is a first move advantage. In other ones, I I, I don't think there is necessarily a first move advantage. And look, what we will also see over time, you know, at the moment, what a lot of crypto companies are doing is they're trying to be everything for everyone and do everything. And I think over time, you will see that start to segregate slightly. So a good, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we became part of DCG, because, you know, we can really just focus on the mass market and helping people get their first crypto easily and, 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 and store that safely for them and educate them. I don't have to worry about building institutional asset management products. I don't have to worry about building media products. I don't have to worry about all the other stuff. And so, you know, you will probably see over time that in every country, there will be a number of different crypto players doing different type of things serving different segments of the market. And and look, we're talking about a really, really enormous, you know, market opportunity. Uh, you know, there's, I don't know how many, you know, 10,000, maybe 20,000 banks globally. So, you know, in our industry, they will, you know, there will certainly be more than one, one winner and, and one major player. And, you know, it, it's probably going to be a bit more concentrated than the banking industry. But, you know, I, I don't think there's, you know, there's this, we're not going to end up in a situation where it's like a Facebook or something where it's just like kind of one company that just, drives the whole thing it's even from a regulatory point of view that won't be allowed so right. so yeah so i think it yeah just depends on the market and and the timing okay final question marcus swanapool what's in store for 2021 are you going to do slow and steady growth or are you going to blow our minds <laughs> good question Look, the market is moving fast as you know and there's a lot happening a lot of the stuff we are going to do is still optimizing product in existing markets. I'm sure you've bought some Bitcoin before and, you know, for you, it's very easy. But for a lot of people, it's not that easy in a lot of countries. You know, they still don't even know where to start, who to trust. Um, it's quite difficult to get your money in and out of the system, which is not usually not on our side the problem. It's normally on the existing uh, financial system. So a lot of the work is going to be in existing markets, really optimizing and localizing the product better, adding new payment methods, a lot of that stuff. Of course, we will be adding new features. You saw us um, adding like an interest product recently, and there's going to be more on that front and a few other currencies. But again, continue work on educating users in the market. And and then a lot of country expansions. We've, we've got really big plans for one or two big markets to get into this year. Um, and of course, all of that supported by, you know, we need a lot of people to help us do this. So we're around 
400 people now. We're going to hire probably 200, 250 people over the next 12 months. So, you know, if anyone's listening and interested, please look at our career site. <laughs> but lastly, you know, a, a big part of what we, you know, people also don't realize there's so much work to do on the regulatory front. You know, if we were in another industry, we could put all of our energy into just making the app nice or adding new coins. But a lot of our effort and our energy goes into security and into regulation. And, you know, we, we have countries like Malaysia where we've successfully, you know, helped create that kind of crypto regulation and, and we have the you know we're operating on a sole license there and we we're going to continue to repeat this in other markets and hopefully also in south africa you know there's been a lot of progress on the regulatory front so a lot of effort is going into that um particular yeah particularly in south africa but you know overall we just want to make sure we're there for our customers and give them really what they need so you know there will be a few uh, interesting surprises along the way um as well but yeah generally i think it's going to be it's going to be a big year and, and, you know, not just a big year, but a big decade for crypto. So so that's something I, I, I can say without a doubt. Okay. So anybody looking for a job, go to luno.com and check out the careers tab there. That was an interesting one. Marcus Swanepoel, we're going <laughs> to leave it there. That was uh, fantastic. Thanks for joining us from London in the midst of your busy schedule. Really looking forward to seeing how this plays out this year. You've, you've really laid out a roadmap there, which is quite fascinating. And we're going to be tracking that uh, very closely. So... Looking forward to catching up with you again shortly. Thank you very much. I really appreciated the opportunity to, to talk to you.